We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome, everybody, to Monday Midrash. Uh, we are still in the first chapter of Breshit Rabbah, of Genesis Rabbah. Um, uh, still in the first verse of Breshit, Breshit Bar Elohim at the Shemaim at the Aret. And uh, Midrash number 12 is, uh, is, is where we've uh, left off. Um, okay, so again, um, we're going to be looking at the verse, Breshi Par Elohim at the Shemaim It's in the beginning God created, um, uh, or, or, or God created in the beginning. Um, and uh, we're using a new edition of uh, Breshi Raba today, so a different translation, different uh, way of doing it. Uh, but... Uh, Folks in cyberspace, you're welcome to send in your comments and questions, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get started. Uh, Nancy, you want to read for sure. us? Okay, Rabbi Yudan. Page 23, I think. I have a little run-up to that. Rabbi, I have the measures sites to teach, and they'll be used to explain why our first states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just did that as an introduction. Okay, Yeah, Thanks. sorry, yeah. Uh, that was cool. Medrash uh, cites a teaching that would be used to explain why our verse states, in the beginning God created, etc., rather than God created in the beginning. But God, the unique one of the world, first acted for the benefit of the world and was praised only at the end. Sorry, uh, hold on one second. Wait, wait. Am I in the right place? We don't have that. I'm sorry. Sorry, Rabbi Yudon. I'm sorry, Cyberspace. <laughs> Rabbi Yudon said the name okay. of Akilas. Hmm, yeah. Akilas. To Hashem, the title of God is befitting. The Mentris explains the intent of this statement by means of a parable. In the usual practice of the world, a king of flesh and blood is extolled by the subjects of his province, even before he has built bathhouses for the benefit of the province, and even before he has built public privies for it. Now, but God, the unique one of the world, first acted for the benefit of the world and was praised only at the end. Did I go to the right section? Yep, you're good. Okay. Another... Right, you know what? Hold on. Let's, let's just pause there. Okay. Everybody everybody, kind of uh, with with the Midrash here, with what he's with what he's saying? Nancy, do you think you got it? What's, what, what, what's the Midrash? Or what's the... Let's start with this question. What's the... Um, uh, what, before you get to the parable, right? Um, what's... what's uh, Rabbi Yudan's uh, 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 point uh, that he's making. He's saying that God deserves the title of God. Right. That's okay. what that first opening line says. Sure. Okay. And what? And and how does that? How does that like extend from the verse that we're talking about in the first place? How do you mean? Yeah. So. Midrash always has to, uh, or, or or almost always, uh, extends from a like careful reading of a verse, right? 
Um, so here is, I, I think, no different, right? So is there uh, is there some like a, a question that arises from the from the that first verse in Genesis itself that would uh, that to which this would be a good answer, right? That uh, that uh, it's fitting to give the title God deserves the title God. And, and when we're saying God in English, we're talking about Elohim. Yeah, which is itself right. So. Uh, it, uh, you know, why is that a, a title rather than a name is another uh, uh, issue, right? So I guess there's there's two pieces. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll just say it instead of giving a leading question about it. Okay, so it seems to me that uh, what's what's happening here is you have you have two things. First of all, why is it that the verse uh, uses Elohim and not Adonai, right? Uh, Yud Hey Vav Hey. Yudhe being the, the more proper name of God, Elohim being more like a job description or a title, right? Um, anyway, by the way, when uh, that's what when people say to me, like, should I write God as G-D, uh, I always say no. I never write God that way. It's not that I have any problem with it. You can do it. Um, but it always seemed to me that uh, that the, the tradition of not writing down the name of God or not disposing of like a proper name of God that's written down applies to God's name, right? But the term G-O-D is not God's name. It's a job description, right? So the name of God is yud heh vav Hey, or if you want to say maybe it's Elohim, Elohim is considered whatever, right? But I always think of, of G-O-D not as, not as God's name. But anyway, so, but, but, one question that the verse may be asking is why is why is it Bereshi bara Elohim and not Bereshi bara Adonai, right? Um, or any other name of God that you might have, right? Bereshi bara Shaddai, Bereshi bara the Kadosh Baruch Hu, whatever, right? Um, so that's one question. Another question is there's actually it's a strange syntax, Bereshi bara Elohim, right? So you would think Bereshit Elohim bara, right, in Hebrew. It's in the beginning, God created. Usually the subject comes before the verb. And we've actually played with that a little bit in the Josh before about uh, um, maybe Elohim is not the subject of, the, of that sentence, but the direct object, right? That, uh, that, that in the beginning, Elohim was created. Um, but here, we, a, a different way of asking that question or thinking about that verse is, okay, so it's, it's a strange syntax. Why does the subject, which... We're just sort of Rabbi Yudan is kind of operating on the premise that Elohim is the subject of that verse, not the object of it, right? Uh, why does Elohim come after? Why does the subject come after the verb when normally it would go the other way around, right? So there's kind of two questions: Why is God called Elohim there? And the other is why does that word? Why is it sort of like misplaced in the sentence? Okay, and the answer. What are the differences? Well, yeah, I mean, so you're asking, you're asking uh, a bunch of questions. It's one of the questions. Sure. I mean, you know, so uh, there's a, there's, there's a few different ways of thinking about that. Uh, So the, the, the mystics, for example, thought that uh, when different names of God are used, they're indicating different uh, attributes or aspects of God that are being highlighted in 
that passage. So classically, Elohim refers to God's attribute of justice, Midat Hadin, and uh, Adonai, Yudhevavhe, uh, is God's is Midat Chesed or Midat Rachamim, right? God's uh, attribute of, of of kindness or compassion. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way is that Yudhevavhe is is God's name, right? Like Michael, right? And Elohim is more like a title, right? So, uh, like Rabbi, right? So, uh, so in other words, you know, here you have God being referred to by the title rather than by the name, right? Now, Elohim itself, like, is an interesting. Uh, so, Yudhevavhe has its own kind of like you know, conjugations and, and meanings. It's some kind of uh, conjugation of the verb to be or being. Um, right, so you know, in in in, in Yigdal uh, or Adonalam, we say like, Hayahu Right, those are all kind of different conjugates of the verb to be, and Yudhevavhe is some kind of like mix mishmash of of all of those words, sort of implying that that God is beingness, you know, transcending past, present, and future, or encompassing all past, present. Uh, or some version of when you know when when God uh, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush and says to God, okay, well I'm going to go to the children of Israel and I'm going to tell them that uh, the God of their fathers sent me. Uh, what will I tell them? Your name is. And anybody remember what God says there? God says, "Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh," which is actually kind of impossible to translate. Um, uh, but I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. Um, uh, what's that? I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Um, <laughs> something like that. So, um, uh, and so that maybe Yudhe is like, uh, you know, uh, uh, evoking that maybe more full or proper name. Um, so that's so that's what Yudhevavhe is, is some kind of like in that space of beingness. Um, Elohim is actually the the term that's used uh, um, when the term is used not to refer to God is like a, a judge is is uh, is uh, judges are Elohim. Um, so that's why that's part of why the Kabbalists think that Elohim is is God you know, God's attribute of judgment or justice. Um, so here, I think that Rabbi Yudan and uh, in the name of Akilas are 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 talking are thinking that uh, you know why is it Elohim as a title being used here, um, which is a kind of formal title and not God and not one of God's names like like Yudhevavhe or Shaddai. You know, El Shaddai is another like name in a proper sense of God rather than a job title. Um, there's in the Gemara they list out a number of names, which are all the kind of things that like you can't then destroy once you've written down if you've written them in the context of having written God's name. Elohim being one of them, but there's but there's a whole bunch, you know. Um, Shalom is one of them. Um, uh, but the, you know, the, so there's there's El Shaddai, Shaddai. Uh, hmm? Makom, yeah. So, so then the the the, ra- the rabbinic tradition has additional ones on top of that. You know, Rachmana, Hamakom. The Bible doesn't refer to God as Hamakom, but uh, but rabbinic literature does. What did you say? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <That's> um, <fun. laughs> 
Um, that answer your questionnaire? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, all right. And so, what's so what's the uh, uh, so what's the there's 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 two levels of of uh, Rabbi Yudan's answer. There's his there's his answer to the question that he doesn't he doesn't really ask the question, but he just gives the answer, and then he kind of explains it by way of a parable. So that's the second level of the answer. But what's the actual what's the answer itself? His answer or our thoughts. Uh, well, what's his answer, and then what are you, then what are your thoughts on the answer? Let's just make sure we understand what he's what he's saying. So the the the, the answer being in the little parable paragraph right beneath it. No, 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 the answer being so. Rabbi Yudan said in the name of Akilas to Hashem, the title of God is befitting. So Rabbi Yudan is saying the title is appropriate. That's what the opening is just saying. That's the statement, or, right. or question and answer. Good, good. So the, the answer is, uh, um, God is called by that title here, uh, and, the, and or the, this, the, the title comes after the action, uh, because uh, uh, you might have thought it's just like a, you know, a, a weird thing or whatever, right? but it's actually, it's appropriate to call God uh, that title in this context, okay? Then... Why does he think he's right about that? That's where the parable comes in. So what, what does he say in the parable? He says a, a king is worshipped because he's to be worshipped even before he does anything for his subjects, like make bathrooms, which mm-hmm. was the, the first thing. It's interesting that he went to bathrooms. I, <laughs> not like, well, it is important, you know. Communal services, no there aren't many in those days. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's it. Public, <laughs> public works, yeah. yeah that's yeah. probably, yeah. that's true. Is it? Many utilities back then, I guess. It is interesting, though, right, that uh, that that they choose the thing that is, that's so utilitarian. Like, you might have thought that they would have said that the thing that the king would come and do is build palaces or, you know, statues to himself or something like that. But the thing that the mind goes to, the, like, what makes a king a king whether they do it before they call themselves king or after they call themselves king is whether they actually serve the public, right? Which is, you know, I think just something worthy to linger on in, in our time and place. That what makes a ruler a ruler, whether they call themselves a ruler first and then do it, or whether they do it first and then call themselves a ruler, is that they actually serve the needs of the people. Um, and, and novel. This is the most, and like, I just thought of it when, when Harry said, but that's even like the most basic of that's the the I don't know because it's it, like they didn't use the example of like building houses or you know throwing um, parties for the people they, it's the most the most needed right matter. yeah I mean the, you know it's interesting I mean the, you know they're I'm trying to th- just kind of like scroll back in my mind through the Bible whether they're you know whether uh, the Bible has a sense of things like um like like public housing, you know that the that the king would build houses for people, um, and um, my my sense is that 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 sort of thing didn't exist. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't have like a, a really I think uh, progressive vision of what a welfare society would look like, which I think the Bible does. Um, uh, that there's there's all any manner of things that the that the the that the population is supposed to provide each other administered through the state. Um, uh, but housing per se isn't necessarily one of them. Oh, okay. um, it's an interesting thing. And yet you go back to the pilgrims here when they came to Massachusetts and what did they do first was the church. 
just to build on that, it, it sort of, uh, makes beginning a, like, uh, a, um, a, uh, like a moment with a beginning and an end. Right. So, so like how much time was the beginning, <laughs> you know? And like, and so within that frame of time, God's creating from the beginning would be like, you know, at the first moment, God began doing these things. So from the beginning, God started creating, right? And then kept on creating until whatever, right? So w- when does the beginning end, I guess I would... Well, I'm more interested in when the beginning started, because that's what we're talking about. It started at the beginning. But if there was already... Or if the beginning was already in play, and then God comes along and creates things, that's one thing. But I've always been taught that God is the entity that created what exists, mm-hmm. which means there was no context within which God started creating, because God's the one who started the context. Does that make sense? He started the beginning. Kind of like, do you mean kind of like, since it says, you know, in the beginning, meaning we're already in it, like yeah. the beginning was already going on? Yeah, exactly. And it's almost like they're saying during the beginning, in, in, in a way. Is, is that what you mean? Yeah. That's really mind-blowing. My pea-sized brain is just catching up now. <laughs> no, no, I'm just thinking I am impressed with it. I'm just thinking about it. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Well, if it goes back to what you said before about which, and I can't remember, Rashid Barat, which word is the subject there? You know, is it the creating... Mm. That gets mixed up in that as well. Yeah. Um, he explained it. Because yeah, if it said like Mithrashi, would be like right that would punctuate the beginning. Uh, right. So it would it would say that like the you know we we know that this that this right from the get go we know that this text is starting at at point zero. Right. Right. But we actually don't know that the text is starting at point right. zero. Right. In uh, so I, you know, I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm, um, um, other uh, other than saying, we actually we actually talked about this a few weeks ago. That you know, there's this tradition that you're not supposed to like. Why is the why does the Torah start with a bet, right, um, as opposed to an aleph, right? Because um, because we're not supposed to like ask what happened before, right? It's got like sort of a closed off wall uh, about one, right? in that direction. So I think what it's saying, I think part of what it might be saying here is, you know, um, if we said from the beginning, um, it would it would imply that the Bible has a clear sense that uh, of, of like of, of how everything came to be. And it's and I don't think it's saying that. I think it's saying that we're not exactly sure how everything came to be. We're 
we're making we're, we're making an argument about how some things came to be, right? But we don't know what happened before that. Um, there, there's just like a point at which we have we we have no idea, and we're going to allude to that by saying that there's this kind of amorphous thing called the beginning, right? Sometime in that time, God started creating the things that you and I can experience. Right? But we don't know exactly when that is or how that came about. We're not actually interested in talking about that. We're we're talking about something that is that 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 sort of transcends those um, those important uh, but maybe unanswerable scientific questions. So that, that's interesting. That takes us into the seventh grade questioning thing about creation, which is you know they all they start asking you all these difficult questions, and you you've talked about that before. Yeah. Well, right, I mean, you know, kids ask me all the time, like, you know, who created God, right? If, if God created everything, you know, who yeah. created God, yeah. So, um, and so what you just said makes some sense in, in the context of that. I think, I think that the, 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 uh, that the Bible is, I mean, it's a beautiful point. I mean, I think the Bible is, is comfortable, what's that? How big is the head of this pen with Dan Spinner? Yeah, there? well, I think the Bible's comfortable <laughs> living living in the mysterious, right? Yeah. Recognizing right. that that there's that there's just a lot, you know, which is which is why, you know, I, I you know what one of the challenges I have with you know religious fundamentalisms and especially biblical fundamentalisms, there's this you know assumption that um, that you know the, the, what the what the Bible says is is how it happened, and I think to that point, I think the Bible's not even sure. Exactly how these things happen. Like those are not those are not questions that the Bible is interested in, right? The Bible is really, in, in a way, you know, not uh, not exactly interested in the mechanics of creation, right? That's not the point it's trying to make. The point it's trying to make is about God's relationship with creation, right? And our relationship with God and our relationship with the rest of creation. But it's not necessarily interested in like literally how everything came to be, other than to say that God was involved in things coming to be, right? Right. Um, the things that we experience. I mean, I've, I've had discussions with my, my granddaughters, uh, those are now 18, um, about this. And, you know, I said the, the first thing you got to become comfortable with when you're talking about this is you don't know the answers to all the questions. And until you're comfortable with the idea that you don't know everything and can't know everything, then you're always going to be swimming in a pool that you cannot cross because it's full of stuff that, no, that, that you don't know. Right. You never will. And is it leaving us in mystery, or is it only telling us what we need to know? Because I feel like there's a difference there, or is there not? Well, uh, I mean, I, listen. I, I guess, I guess it's certainly the second thing, right? It's it's telling it's telling us what what, what it thinks we need to know. Um, the first part of it. I think is a matter of perspective, you know. So, um, uh, is it is it that uh, that the that the that the Torah knows the answer to those questions? It's just deciding not to give us the answer to those questions, or is it that the Torah doesn't actually know the answers to those questions and uh, is not preoccupying itself with the answers to those questions? I I prefer to think the second thing. Uh, but the first thing is possible, you know, um, I, I just, I would wonder then about the first thing, well, why not, right? Like, why, why do you think that that's not important for us to know? Um, now when, when Harry was talking like what, you know, what struck me, the swimming analogy is a really beautiful one because like, I, I actually don't need to know how gravity works, uh, in order or like how, you know, respiration works in order to swim. 
I just need to know that like I can't breathe in water and if I let the water work to its own devices, um, I'm going to sink. Right, so like I, I need to know those two things at minimum, um, but the rest of the physics and mechanics of it, I actually don't really need to know all that well um, in order to get you know across the pool. Um, and so that to your point, you know, like um, uh, you don't need to know necessarily, you know, uh, all the all the mechanics of like how God was created, or whatever, because what you need to know is like how to live in this world that we have been placed in, right? Um, and and what what's our place in that world? Right? Um, so we get all that information. It just seems like what we do here explores all those spaces between. So, I don't know, it's almost like learning how the physics of swimming is what we're doing with this. Maybe, except for when you get to Midrashim that say, don't worry so much about the physics of swimming, right? Like the one we read <laughs> a few weeks ago, that like, well, you know, why does the Torah start with a bet? Because you don't need to know all that, all that other stuff. You know, just, just focus on what's, you know, just keep swimming. Right? Just focus on what's in front of you, right? Um, so, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, but you do, but you do get some of that for sure. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, like playing that analogy for a little bit, like how, what would you do with the Midrash that says that, you know, that, that the, that God created the Torah first, uh, and, uh, and, and used the Torah in order to, to create the world. So put it, plug that into the swimming analogy. What would you, what would you say? I'm too, I'm too slow for these like fast questions. Well, it seems to me, in order for that to be the case, that I mean, I'm assuming that this creation and the the Bible's uh, teaching us about it and writing is meant to teach us something. Uh, it, if it tells us that the Torah that the Torah was created first, um, and that the Torah became the basis for creation, um, at the beginning of the story, nobody knows anything about Torah. Mm-hmm. There isn't anybody. Adam hadn't come along yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Torah is about uh, about human beings and their lives, um, and the Mishigas we all get into. Um, and there wasn't any of that at the point. So you're giving, you're making the Torah an, an active man. Is that what you're doing? Is that the idea? Maybe. Uh, well, a couple of thoughts that I had uh, uh, in, in reaction to that are, you know, so if if, if God creates the Torah first, uh, and 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 you know, kind of, it creates human beings uh, uh, it, that that are. Um, that are that are created in the context of Torah and moving toward Torah, right? Then maybe in the swimming analogy, what we're saying is that you know um, it's not you don't need to know you don't need to know like you know how you know, the mechanics of how gravity works and the physics of it and all that. Um, uh, you don't need to know you know what came before the Big Bang in order to to swim, but you need to need to know why you're swimming and what you're swimming toward. You know, um, right? So, you know, like, like you, you know, if you if you don't have a if you don't have an endpoint in mind, you're going to sink, right? If you don't have a goal, an objective of how you're, of where you're swimming to in mind, you're going to sink. And the other thing I was thinking is that um, uh, this is another Rabbi Artson thing in, in a way. I'll get back to that in a second. But it's like um, uh, unless you're swimming in the context of Torah, you're wasting your time. 
you know, you're, you're, <laughs> um, so, you know, so like if you're swimming to like make your body more healthy, uh, which is a piece of Torah, right. Then, then, then you're not wasting your time. If you're swimming, you know, if you're, if you're swimming to spend time with your family, right. With, you know, uh, and, and teaching your children how to swim an important life skill or whatever, right, you're not wasting your time. If you're, if you're, if you're swimming, you know, um, whatever. Anyway, I'm just sort of like spitballing this, right. But, but the point is like, unless you're doing it for Torah, Right, it's uh, it's it's not an effective use. It's not a, a, a effective use of your time. Rabbi Artson talks a lot about that. It's like one of the things that's always stuck with me about it. He has like a very rigid sense of what's a waste of time and what's not a waste of time. Um, so like virtually all sports to him are a waste of time, um, which I generally agree with. Um, uh, but like you know, I, I think he thinks that like uh, movies are generally a waste of time, which I would disagree with. Or, like, he was very interested. But he did say something really fascinating in this, this Q&A that I was just listening to. He said, I love this. He said, there's no such thing in Judaism as life cycle events. He said, don't say this to your congregants because it's going to get you fired. But uh, So I'm saying it to you, but in confidence. Um, he said, there's no such thing as life cycle events. So, like, you know, um, what there are, uh, what, what there is, is celebration of Torah. And so insofar as, as a moment in anybody's life fits into the like narrative of Torah or is an opportunity to celebrate an event in the life of Torah, that you celebrate. So it's why you celebrate a child's 13th birthday and not their 10th birthday. I mean, you can celebrate their 10th birthday, but Jewishly, we celebrate their 13th birthday because it's a moment in the life of the covenant. It's a moment in the life of the Torah. It's not a moment in the life of the child. It's a moment in the life... It, we have another person who is able to embrace the covenant, right? That's a moment in the life of the covenant, right? It's probably what he would say in terms of, uh, of, of why we uh, only do weddings between two Jews, right? Because a wedding between a Jew and a non-Jew is not a moment in the life of the covenant, right? Um, uh, but a wedding between two Jews is. Uh, and so now I'm, I'm playing with that a lot at the moment. That's another kind of... Like what? I kind of like that. I like it too. It's not very touchy feely when you have like a couple in front of you and say like, I'm not really celebrating you. I'm celebrating Torah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, insofar as your life aligns with Torah, it's still I'm just, significant though. I mean, you don't think that a couple would be on board. I don't know. Maybe. I, I think, know. I think you and your wife I would mean, be on board with that. Um, I think mo- if you ask most families who are celebrating B'nai Mitzvah, it's it's their I mean, family's celebration. I mean, this classes. I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that have nothing to do with the theory of all this. We had a bris, you know, a bris in that framework, right? Is not it's not celebrating the baby. It's celebrating the fact that you brought somebody new into the covenant, right? right? right. Um, so anyway, I just was thinking about that. Is it like okay, you know, if I was to play like in the in the analogy of, of swimming in the pool and uh, and and using the idea of like the Torah being part of the creation of the world, you know, your swimming in the pool is insignificant in and of itself unless it's in the context of something having to do with Torah, right? Um, I, I, I can see that. I don't think that fits in. No. This. No. Not at all, but show up for it's a relational. It's a opportunity. relational opportunity. Exactly. Gussied up as Torah. I, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Um, it's an RO. Uh, an RO. RO, man. 
What are so okay, so what's <laughs> going back to this? So what's what's he saying in this analogy, right? So why why are we why are we why is it fitting to call to use the term Elohim to uh, to, to refer to God in that first passage of Genesis? Well, isn't uh, God is the, the subjects? Uh, I don't know how the, for lack of a other, other term, the, the, the subjects of God who we're talking about here are treating God even before God has acted as if God is a fair, justiciable entity, um, which would be consistent with Elohim, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. As opposed to I mean, public work, the provision of public works, put it in the contemporary context, mm-hmm. is being sensitive to the needs of the people. And were he, were he not to do that, then uh, he would not be at such an elemental need. But by fulfilling that, that, that elemental need, it's really an a expression of how all-powerful God is. Because that's getting to the very essence of their life, their daily life. So that's sort of a power play. And it says in the um, the story, the parable, you know, that they are a human king is celebrated. He's he's celebrated even before he's done anything. But with <clears throat> with creation, it was reverse. He did everything to set us up for success before we were. <clears throat> even around to say how how great he was. That's really um, generous, you know. Yeah. So I think I, I mean I think that there's there's commonality here, and I think that that's right. I think that what 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 this is saying is that you know typically right you know so like you know Charles is going to be king of England, right? You're going to call him king before he even does anything as king, right? Um, uh, you know, Queen, queen Elizabeth was called queen before, like her first official act as as queen. How whatever good she may or may not have done, she was called queen first, and she would have expected it. Right here, you have God acting in the opposite way. First, I'm gonna do for you, and then you call me by my title. Right? And like so. So in other words, going back to what Rabbi Yudan says, Tashem, the title of God is befitting. In other words, it God. Uh, God is not called Elohim uh, until God deserves it, right? So it's fitting, it's more like deserving, right? He deserves to be called by this title. So that's what Barah comes first and then Elohim, rather than Elohim comes first and then Barah. <coughs> so in the beginning, created did Elohim, right? As opposed to in the beginning, Elohim created, right? Saying the reason. <coughs> The, tit- it's u- the title is used and that it comes after the act is to say that uh, God is not called Elohim until God's done something to deserve it. Now I think, again, sort of going back to, I think that you know, to me this is um, a, a, a teaching you know, not, not only about the greatness of God but of uh, the inadequacy of, uh, of human leadership. Right, human leadership is the power play. Right, it expects the the respect first, and once you respect me, right, then I'll do a thing or two for you. Right, um, and and here it says no. The way you 
the way you garner respect is through service. The way you, the way you deserve respect is through service. And the way God... It's like a seminar on leadership right there. Yeah. Um, the... Um, the, uh, um, there's a similar midrash that comes in on the Ten Commandments where it, it asks you essentially like why did God begin the Ten Commandments by saying I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the uh, land of Egypt from the house of bondage uh, why did God start the Ten Commandments that way uh, and one of the answers is uh, that um, uh, it's 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 similar, but it's different because the the so you have you know it, with a flesh and blood king, um, you know someone will come to their country and say, "I'm going to be your king now," and they'll say the subjects will say, "Well, what have you done for us? Right, that we should call you king." Right, and so then the king would say, "Well, okay, well, I'm going to build this road, and I'm going to like build these houses, and I'm going to build these bathhouses, right? Uh, and and that's what I'll have done for you." Right? And, and so God, in order to have the authority to, uh, to, to give the rest of the Ten Commandments, has to, say, has to say, these are all the things that I've done for you to deserve uh, the, the authority of giving you laws. Right? So it's a similar idea that like, before God can claim the authority of being God, God first has to demonstrate that God is actually in the service of the people. It's like his resume. Yeah. The credibility. Yeah. That's very cool. Street cred. Um, um, okay, let's see. Do we want to go on to a similar parable uh, um, to explain the wording of the verse on page twenty-four? The the ending of that of that first parable is you know God is not like flesh and blood kings, right? God, uh, uh, we're flesh and blood kings that expect to be called king first and then do the thing for you. Right? God does the things first and then is, deserves the praise. Um, another similar parable to explain the wording of our verse. You see where we are, Nancy? Yeah, you want to read for us? Yeah, another similar parable? Remember, as I says, Scripture states, and your humility made me great. In what way is God's humility manifest? Can we just linger on that for a second? Your humility made me great. I just... I don't want to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> like, there's just like, there's a lot of leadership lessons here. Let's just leave it at that. Um, that, uh, that we usually think that, that um, I think of Yoda, uh, who, you know, like Luke says when he first meets Yoda, um, I'm looking for a great warrior. And Yoda says, oh, war not make one great. Right? And so it's the same thing. You know, people usually think that like, you know, like acts of power are what makes a leader great. You know, acts of accomplishment are what makes a leader great. But here's the, you know, humility makes me great. Anyway, okay. In what way is God's humility manifest? A flesh and blood human being first mentioned his name and then his praise. For example, he refers to himself as so-and-so the Augustus or so-and-so the governor. But the Holy One, blessed be he, is not so. Rather, only after creating the requirements of, the, of his universe did he mention his name. Hence, first it states, in the beginning, created, and only afterward does it state, Elohim, God. Keep going. No, let's, let's pause there. Um, so similar, right, to kind of like just restating the other Midrash in a slightly different way, right? Um, that, uh, you know, so first, 
call me Caesar, and then maybe I'll build a road for you, right? And God's not like that, right? Uh, first, God creates everything that needs to be created, and then says, uh, if you want, you can call me God. We've had other uh, midrashim talking about the order of these words, right? A couple other, a couple of them ago. Mm-hmm. Are we allowed to pick a favorite? Because that is so good. That, <laughs> that one is so... You can pick a favorite. It just tied it right. It's, it's like concise and just bang. I love that. Uh, we're about out of time. Any any final thoughts or? Yeah, so go back to the the first of the Ten Commandments, and, and my understanding of that was that until you would accept God, then the rest of them didn't follow. Right. So, um, were you not saying that when you were talking about it before? I kind of didn't get. No, it's a, it, that's exactly what that midrash is saying, right? It's saying, you know, why does God, uh, why does God start the Ten Commandments by like, you know, giving the resume, right? And the reason is because um, you need, you, uh, it's it's an argument for accepting the authority of God to then buy into the Ten Commandments, right? And so um, God presumes uh, to not have uh, the authority to be a lawgiver uh, until. God has earned it, um, which is which is incredible. You know, um, uh, it's either an incredible act of humility on God's part, or an incredible act of recognition of where human beings are. Right. So God can't just say, you know, uh, people say, well, why should I observe this? Because I'm God. Right. God doesn't say that. God says. You should observe this because I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt to the house of bondage, right? You like you owe me one, right? Um, uh, like I, you know, what? I've already showed you, right? It's like a Jewish guilt trip, right? Right. <laughs> right. That's where it all started. Right. Oh. You, you don't want to keep Shabbos? Okay, that's fine. I just took you out of Egypt. Why don't I just nope. did all these things. Just uh, took you out of Egypt. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't we end on that and uh, and we'll we'll pick it up next week.